Welcome to Storytelling Animals, a Green New Books podcast of climate, ecology, and animal justice. My guest today is the novelist Matt Bell, author most recently of Appleseed. I read this book earlier this year, it came out in 2021, and it's quite possibly my favorite work of cli-fi or climate fiction I've ever read. It's creative, it's urgent, it's beautifully written, blending myth and sci-fi, and just absolutely electric with ideas. Like the best of the fruit for which it is named, Appleseed is juicy, dripping with fears and hopes and doubts and mourning and maybe most of all love for this world we live on. But what is it actually about? This is a harder question to answer. I let Matt take a stab at it in the interview, but even though we mostly avoid spoilers and specific plot details, and we often talk about issues that are not directly connected to the book, it might help if beforehand, uh, to help you follow the conversation, I introduce the basic premise and a few character names ahead of time. So, for the most part, every three chapters takes place in a different time period. Uh, we start in 1799 with a fawn named Chapman, who is sort of the novel's twist on Johnny Appleseed. The half-human, half-wild Chapman travels the Midwest with his human brother Nathaniel, planting apple trees. Nathaniel is hoping to pave the way for white human settlement and to subdue the chaos of nature, but Chapman can't help finding much to appreciate in that chaos. The next timeline is set toward the end of this century, where things are looking pretty bleak. There's a big company called Earth Trust, I call it Earthworks a couple times in the interview, sorry about that, um, that Earth Trust moved everyone out of the ecologically devastated western states and set up these voluntary agriculture communities across the globe. Highly engineered farming bubbles that offer food and working, work and shelter uh, and some respite from the climate disasters of the outside world, but at the expense of any democratic rights, you're basically just a subject of Earth Trust if you live there. The main character of this plot is John, a founding member of Earth Trust who has come to oppose the company. And we will also talk about the company's founder, Yuri Morov. It feels like maybe not a coincidence that Yuri shares initials with Elon Musk. She does want to address the problems of climate change and ecological collapse, but she wants to do so with no democratic oversight, with full power herself, and she prefers experimental technologies to the pursuit of any systemic change. And then the final timeline stars a creature named C, maybe a thousand years, give or take, in the future. C is, so far as we can tell, the last living sentient organism in North America. I won't explain too much about him, but he basically has to decide whether to keep on uh, sustaining himself indefinitely in isolation, or to try to figure out if there's some way to help bring the rest of life back. Bringing life back is hard, however, because North America, and we assume much of the planet, has been entirely covered in glacial ice. If you've seen the movie or show Snowpiercer, you may guess correctly that this ice is the result of geoengineering gone wrong. For those not familiar, one proposal that many people have seriously suggested to mitigate global warming is to inject tons of tiny particles in the atmosphere that will reflect sunlight, thus cooling off the Earth. Conceivably, if we injected too many of these particles, or if they reflected too much sunflight, things could get very cold indeed, uh, and this is a possible dystopia explored in this novel, as well as the movie and TV show Snowpiercer. So when I first heard about Appleseed, I thought it sounded fascinating, but I also didn't love that the future dystopia was an ice planet. Wouldn't it be more helpful to imagine an overheated planet? 
But when I actually read the book, I realized geoengineering is is the perfect plot device because what unites all three timelines is that you have these characters who seek to tame the planet. Uh, Nathaniel, the the apple uh, planter, um, and then the geoengineers to who seek to remake the planet in a particular image that serves particular people. And then you have other characters who strive instead to undo these hierarchies where one person chooses what or a, a minority of people choose what the planet should look like. Uh, and instead, these resistors seek to share the Earth's bounty with all, human and non-human alike. In this sense, as much or more as the book is about climate change, it's about democracy and technology and resistance. And we talk about these issues in the interview. Okay, this is already a longer-than-normal introduction to a longer-than-normal episode, but it is worth mentioning briefly that Matt Bell is not the only author these days using sprawling, multi-generational, multi-genre narratives to explore big issues like climate change. The novelist and critic Lincoln Michelle recently attempted to define and name this trend, calling these books speculative epics. He traces the lineage back to David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas, and says there's been a recent surge in this type of novel, including Appleseed, as well as other new and recent books like How High We Go in the Dark and Cloud Cuckoo Land. Uh, Matt Bell mentions in our interview that starting Appleseed with the story of Manifest Destiny in 1799 meant that he had to look further to the future if he wanted to finish the story, because the effects of uh, the settler colonial era are ongoing and far from over. It's interesting to think about how climate change, which is also an issue where the past and present can affect the far future, might be inspiring novels to be more experimental in their attempts to address it. Obviously, experimental novels and ecological novels have been around for a long time, even well before Cloud Atlas, but if it's true that the 2020s have seen a marked growth in this trend, well, if the others are anything like Appleseed, I am excited to read more speculative epics. Okay, on to the interview. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so um, the novel is Appleseed, and when I was reading it, I was I was really excited about it. I was really enjoying it, and you know, people would ask, "What are you reading? Are you reading anything good?" And I would say, "Yeah, it's this novel called Appleseed." And they would say, "Oh, cool. What's it about?" And I would say, "Well, so okay, there's this fawn, but also there's a thousand years later." And but some of it is is near future, so I I never really got a good elevator pitch for this novel. So I assume you have had more time to refine one than I have. So tell us what Appleseed is about. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I feel like that's been sort of a persistent challenge of the whole book. You know, um, there's um, uh, one version that's like this, like the focused on the fawn part, right? Sort of like it's a mythological retelling of Johnny Appleseed, but he's a fawn. And that's that sort of like ironic twist log line that's that's easy to describe. Um, when I talk about the book as a whole, I, I do talk about it as, you know, this thousand year speculative novel about uh, climate change and our relationship between the human and the non-human. But even that doesn't really tell you what it is. Right. So I think I do try to talk a little bit about the the three timelines, the sort of 1799 section with our fond uh, Johnny Appleseed um, and then the near future kind of late climate disaster of John's late 21st century. 
and then this uh, rebooted 700 years in the future um, glacial America with C-432. Um, but, uh, but it's a tricky book to describe, as, as maybe all books with this many moving parts are. Um, you know, one of the things always was sort of compared to was something like Cloud Atlas, but Cloud Atlas is really hard to describe, right? It's sort mm -hmm. of those books like if you've read it, you know what a Cloud Atlasly like novel is, but it, I don't know that I couldn't tell you what Cl Cloud Atlas is about either, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's tough. Yeah, so maybe we can start with that first timeline um, sure. and that it's sort of this retelling of Johnny Appleseed. In this and some of your other writing, you're interested in adapting stories from myth and folklore. What drew you to Johnny Appleseed here? Yeah, you know, um, it was really uh, the the book in some ways began there. That was the the sort of original part I was writing was that timeline. And uh, it was spurred partly by uh, Michael Pollan's The Botany of Desire. I was reading all these books about, uh, you know, food and food systems and um and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Botany of Desire, but uh, mm -hmm. each of the sections of the book is about like a different domestic crop and like sort of its place in human life. And he's talking about the apple and talks about Johnny Appleseed as a um, as a Dionysian figure who is spreading all the apples are mostly used for booze. Right. So he's spreading uh, alcohol across the Americas. Uh, and I uh, I'd always loved the Johnny Appleseed folktale when I was a kid. And, you know. Um, I thought, oh, it'd be really fun to write like Johnny Appleseed is like a literal Dionysian figure, like a satyr or a fawn. Um, and so it really did kind of begin from that. Um, and then I think it, you know, it turned really quickly into having all these interesting sort of angles, the, the half human, half animal character in this wilderness setting gave me, uh, access to both the human and non-human worlds in a way that, uh, more straight retelling would not have. Um, and that just ended up being really generative to sort of begin in that place and sort of spiral out from there. Yeah. So the the main character in kind of the middle timeline, the, the near future one, is, um, you know, just a, a regular human. But the main characters of both the 1799 and the far future timelines are these hybrids. Um, you you said that sort of the fawn is, is half human, half wild. Uh, we've on a previous episode of the talk, podcast, I talked with uh, the author Laura Jean McKay about writing characters who are who are dingoes or are mosquitoes or are wholly mm. non-human. How did you approach writing these sort of hybrid, part human, part non-human characters? Yeah, I wish I could say I like knew in advance how to do it, although that would not probably be true. Um, <laughs> I think uh, I think in some ways, I mean, I think a thing I think about in my own life, and this is the part that's present in John's is you feel the um the at least i feel sometimes like the estrangement between my life and and the natural world, and estrangement between me and, and sort of wild animals and um i i like to believe there was a time when humans were not as estranged uh, but maybe it's hard to get back to that from where we are you know mm -hmm. um it's easy to it's, it's something to think about something i feel toward but i think the true sort of connection i hope we once felt with the world around us, it's very difficult for me to get to. Um, and so in some ways it was imagining people with more access to that. Like what would it be like to have uh, a, a more access? But I think, you know, Chapman is raised by humans. He lives in a mostly human world and his access is a little limited too. You know, I think mm -hmm. he has more, but it's not total. Um, you know, we talked about my getting spoilers and this feels like an, an early book spoiler, but uh 
you know, when, when C starts having the tree growing out of him, that sort of is, is mm-hmm. the major uh, inciting incident of his part of the book. Um, there's, there's something really interesting about a character with like literally no barrier between himself and this like, you know, wild non-human thing mm-hmm. um, and how he would choose to negotiate that relationship. But, you know, a lot of it's just trial and error and trying to figure out what the book's interested in and what the characters are interested in. Um, you know, uh, trying to let animals in the book be themselves, not just only being seen for like, you know, how they interact with humans or, or how they're, um, useful to humans, uh, seems really important. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know if I have like a clear, like, this is how you write a non-human character. (laughs) Um, in some ways, maybe because none of these characters really are, but I'm really fascinated by that question. And I think fiction that decenters the human um, seems important and necessary and we need more of. Yeah. So it, like when you were reading Michael Pollan, were you already thinking, okay, my next novel is going to be, is going to address climate change in some way, or did you just kind of start with Johnny Appleseed and the fawn and, and things spiraled from there? Um, probably a little more the latter, although, um, I mean, you can't, you know, as soon as you start writing an environmental novel that you have to write about climate change, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I think, but I don't think I set out to like, I'm looking for a way mm-hmm. to write a climate change novel. That's probably not right. Um, but I do, I mean, uh, you know, I, whatever I'm writing, you're writing about the things that you're interested in the world or things that you're afraid of in the world. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons to write a book like this was that I got to to spend you know, uh, three, four five years thinking really deeply about climate change and reading and researching. And, um, and I think that was really necessary. I've always been a, an environmentalist. I've always, you know, uh, worried about climate change and cared about it. But I, I think this was my opportunity to really make that the, the questions of my life for a little while. Um, but it wasn't like a pre-existing, like, uh, if only I had a good plot, I'd read a climate change novel, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I do think that, you know, the it seemed really clear to me as soon as I started writing about 1799, and, and I don't know if I knew exactly what year I was in when I started, but that settler colonial manifest destiny uh, timeline that uh, that I was going to need more time, that I was going to need to, like, go into, like, the future, um, into our time and into the future, partly just because the things that are happening in 1799 can't really be seen from it, right? The effects happen in the future, the... Mm-hmm. The, both the like kind of uh, ideological effects and the um, physical effects on the world. And so I think uh, the, the scale of the book is partly a way to get a big enough timeline to, to tease out some of these threads through history and even past us into the future um, as a way of maybe thinking about my own space and time and my own limited perspective inside this like larger story we're part of. Yeah, I think in some ways that sort of settler colonial manifest destiny theme is is more fundamental to to all three narratives and and what connects them than than mm-hmm. climate change, which might be sort of the I don't know the sexier hook today. Um, yeah, that's probably true. Like, a, yeah, there's not a like uh, cli-fi version of like manifest destiny layers. I mean, there is right. That's what post colonial it is and stuff, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not the same kind of marketing hook, probably. Uh, not that you can worry about that too much, but uh, but it doesn't matter, of course. In in some ways, all three timelines take place after a depopulation of the American West. Um, mm-hmm. In the first one, we get this this 
really breathtaking nature writing. Some of my favorite parts of the book are Chapman the Fawn and his brother exploring the continent and planting apple trees, um, but also kind of conspicuously absent, and you briefly allude to this, are the former indigenous inhabitants, human indigenous human inhabitants. Um, mm-hmm. And then the near future timeline, the the entire U.S. West has become this basically sacrifice zone. A, a big corporation has, has moved everyone out. Um, and then in the final timeline, all of North America is, is covered in ice um, and basically almost entirely devoid of life. Uh, how, you know, these environmental problems, climate problems, um, even settler colonialism in a lot of ways are, are global problems. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think, but I think it really works to make this about sort of the U.S. Midwest and West. How did you kind of zero in on that as the setting? Um, you know, to, to some extent, uh, to some extent, things were predetermined, right? Like, uh, Johnny Appleseed worked in a certain area mm-hmm. of Ohio and Indiana. And so like that, that, uh, in Pennsylvania. So like that as a base seems like it was almost predestined, right? It had to be that, um, I'm from the Midwest, you know, I, I grew up in Michigan. I went to grad school in Ohio, like that's sort of home for me. And so the landscape that I, I know best and, and uh, return to a lot, obviously, imaginatively. That's probably my uh, imaginative home as well. Um, but then, I, you know, I've lived in, in Arizona for eight years and I, I love the West. And, um, and so, you know, some of it's like, you're, uh, so, you know, you're writing what you know there, too. Um, you know, like uh, sometimes it's it's I, I wouldn't be able to say this when I was writing it. But, you know, like John's part of the story starts in in Canyonlands and Yellowstone and um, you know, one of the things you're trying to do at the beginning of a novel is, is create urgency, like the reason the story has to happen, the, you know, and one of the ways to do that for myself, I know, was to, uh, to, to show, you know, a, a damaged Yellowstone from climate change, from human sort of neglect, um, that, uh, you know, it's, it's one of my favorite places on earth and to show it imperiled was a way of creating that kind of narrative urgency in myself. Right. Um, mm-hmm. so uh, and then, you know, there's other things like some of the stuff that's in Nevada, like um, I was I've always been fascinated with the the Yucca Mountain re- repository that we were in theory going to put our nuclear waste, which, of course, we never did. Um, some of it's just working with things that are already in your brain that you're already a little obsessed with and, and sort of seeing what can be sort of constellated around each other. Um, and I, I guess I'd say also like uh, part of making this particular climate future was thinking of like a worst case scenario, um, as I understood it at the time. And, uh, you know, living in the, in the Southwest and in, in Arizona, um, the worst case scenario for Arizona is, is probably an unlivable place. You know, I uh-huh. mean, it's, um, it's hard to imagine a world in which we do nothing. And in 2099, anyone lives in this house I'm sitting in, you know, it just doesn't uh-huh. seem possible that that would be the case. Um, so yeah, I think in some ways it's like working close to home, right? It's working with places, you know, and, uh, and with futures that seem, um, or past that seem personal in some way. Yeah. In that, um, timeline with, with John going to, to Yellowstone and seeing it sort of degraded or imagining the American West, you know, with even more drought and stuff, how much of that is... I guess how much like climate and biodiversity research data did you pour through um, and how, how strictly do you hold yourself to, you know, matching what the scientific paper says versus just creating a, a general mood? 
Sure. Uh, uh, I read a lot of climate science, science and a lot of uh, environmental philosophy and different things. And, um, and I, I, uh, especially some of the things like the geoengineering parts in the book, which is so central. And so really did do a lot. Um, I, uh, I'm not a climate scientist, obviously, you know, and I, I don't have that kind of training. Um, but you know, I'm a good reader and I can try. Uh, and I, I would say, I hope it's like ballparked, right? Like I, I, I hope it's in the right um, that is broadly right. Cause uh, you know, if, if it gets too far from, from the real, then some of the things the book is about matter less, right? Like, I don't mm-hmm. think it has to be perfect. Um, but I do think it has to be plausible. Um, and same with like the future politics of the, of the book. Like I, I think I, um, I tried to design something that I could see how it would happen. And I think that's the case. Um, doesn't mean it really could or really would, but you know, like for me, it seemed, it seemed plausible. Um, of course, a lot of the explanation comes out because it's not really that necessary for the reader. Um, but I, I did probably write more in at one point. Um, you know, related to that, actually, maybe more than the technological part of it, um, trying to make what the book had to say about our own lives and our own possible futures work. I think I thought a lot about the magical parts of the book and like mm. how much magic the book could hold how much supernatural the book could hold and have it still be like our future, you know, or our present. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's Chapman and the witches and, and, Oh, and, and, and the head and these kind of things. But all that mostly is like kind of confined to like the woods in the Midwest, right? Like, you know, it doesn't have to change American history for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in other sort of early drafts, there was more of that kind of stuff. And I was like, Oh, we're not going to end up with our future if there's this much of it, you know? Right. Um, and so I scaled a lot of that back so that, the future could be ours or plausibly ours. Yeah. So in the acknowledgements, one thing you do that I actually really appreciate is credit to books in particular with helping you develop your ideas. Mm. Uh, the first of these is Wendell Berry's The Unsettling of America. Uh, for those who don't know, who is Wendell Berry and you know what role did this book play in, in your process? Sure. Uh, you know, Wendell Berry's, uh, I, I mean, I wrote short stories and novels and poems and essays. I think the things that were most sort of germane here were his work, um, writing about, uh, about agriculture and, and in, uh, sort of against the industrialization of agriculture, especially, um, there's a line in Appleseed that I'm going to bobble, but I think it's a little bobbled in the book. John kind of remembers this Wendell Berry quote, but he doesn't remember who says it and, um, see if I can get it right off the top of my head. But, um, a man with a machine and insufficient culture is a pestilence. And I, I think that brings like very true to me, you know, the sort of, uh, our technology outpaces our morality or our, our philosophy. Um, it certainly outpaces our laws, like kind of constantly. Um, and, um, and one of the challenges we have is that, uh, technological advances are not going to cease, but we often accept them before we know whether we should. And I think that seems kind of central to, how we got to here. And I think Barry, uh, you know, the answer of America might be 40 years old. And I feel like nothing in that book really rang untrue to me reading it in, mm-hmm. you know, five years ago. Um, so I think Barry, and I, I think Barry, uh, you know, one of the other people who has a big influence on this book is Ursula Le Guin. And I think a thing that Le Guin and Barry share is like a, an enviable, like moral clarity, um, which sometimes comes across as, as, as moral anger, which is probably right too. Um, and they, uh, it doesn't mean they don't ever change their mind, but like there, there's very little wishy-washiness about Barry. And I think I really appreciated that. 
Um, it's easy to get into this sort of manufactured doubt, nihilism, uh, fear, sort of place of climate change. Um, but that doesn't mean there aren't answers, that there isn't moral clarity to be had about some of these things. I think Barry was a good example of how to um, think in a way that is um, uh, curious and interested, but also like um, not afraid to make a conclusion and sort of live by it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, in the the middle timeline, um, basically the the entire U.S. West has been taken over by this corporation called Earth Trust. People have been moved out. Um, they've also set up sort of these very technologically intensive uh, agricultural zones. Um, and I, one of the one of the the books you mentioned, the acknowledgments, I think is helpful for understanding the world in which something like earthworks could happen. Uh, and that's Naomi Klein's, uh, the shock doctrine, the rise of disaster capitalism. So again, kind of, you know, who's Klein and, and what is disaster capitalism? Sure. Um, you know, uh, uh, I really, I really admire that book and, and think it's, it's very good. And I was reading, uh, Naomi Klein's book and then also a, a book by, um, George Packer called the assassin's gate, which I think draws in that book. That might even be where I, how I got to the Klein. Um, but you know, in, in the assassin's gate is about the invasion of Iraq at post nine 11 and talks about, you know, things like, uh, like Halliburton coming in and, you know, making all this money in, in Iraq, you know, a disaster we we Americans caused and then exploited for for profit. Um, the other uh, obvious sort of excellent example is um, uh, at post Hurricane Katrina. Um, not you know companies went in and made all this money, kind of reconstructing uh, New Orleans or, or selling land to you know not the people who were displaced, but to new people and and you know that there's a people profiting off these sort of disasters. Um, in real, in our real world, there are, I think there are almost no positive examples of the, using this sort of uh, a shock that allows you to take control. But I, I did start thinking about like, would these same mechanisms that allow corporations to exploit disaster, could they be used to accrue enough power to do something unilateral about climate change, which is really what uh, Yuri Mirov in the book and, and Earth Trust are, are doing. Like their solution is not my solution, but it's a solution, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, yeah, I think I was trying to plausibly figure out how a single person or a single corporation could gain enough power in a short period of time to do something uh, like geoengineer the stratosphere. Uh, and so that was one of the ways that I, I think I figured that out. Um, I'm not sure what it got there without that that book or without Packer pointing me toward it. Um, so I was really glad for that example. Um, yeah, it doesn't mean I think that should happen, of course, but, uh, <laughs> I, I was at least, uh, interesting to sort of think about, um, how, I mean, I, I think one of the anxieties of this book and my own anxieties is really about like, is democracy up to the task of climate change? You know, like, mm -hmm. can we move fast enough when we all have to agree to do it? Um, I, and I hope so, but it, it does feel like the evidence is not always in favor of that. And so it was, in some ways, looking for an anti-democratic but benevolent solution to trying to save the world, even if the solution is not the one I would like us to have to do. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so you're from Michigan. Kind of the other example I was reminded of reading this is uh, emergency management, where, for instance, the Detroit public schools were were put under control by this appointed mm. official from the governor uh, for 10 years. 
uh, and not someone anyone in Detroit had elected or chosen. Um, and so, yeah, this this theme of democracy really does pervade the book and especially that section because the people who come work in like the earth trust volunteer agricultural communities uh they you know they get food they get shelter they get to you know protection from the natural disasters that are caused by climate change elsewhere Um, but they also give up any and all democratic rights um Mm -hmm. and you you were saying you have your own anxieties about about whether democracy can um, can help us, but the the narrator of, of this section, John, it is really angry that the the CEO of Earth Trust, uh, you know, presumes this power to to choose for everyone else. So maybe yeah. talk about his anger. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's the other side of the coin, right? Is like um, both like. It's hard. I'm trying to imagine a world in which we like get to like all we all choose the best possible future together um, in our current state of like um, high misinformation, low engagement seems really difficult. Right. Um, but that that doesn't mean that the what I want instead is for one person to be the person who decides for everyone. Um, and I think, you know, I, uh, I was writing this. I started this book maybe right before the 2016 election. Um but uh, but I think, you know, someone like Trump's like general uh, message was almost like, I'm the only person who can save you, you know, like that kind of uh, thing is also not the ideal solution, you know. Um, and so, you know, I think it's always like in some ways you're looking for fiction, you're looking for pressure points, you're looking for trouble. So you're, you're not designing ideals, you're designing things that are interesting for story. Um, and... Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting mix there. Like that question of like, what would you give up in order to be safe is a, uh, it's an already, it's part of our life every day. The things we, the things we choose not to solve in our society so that we can hold, hold on to what we think we might lose if we did, you know, um, uh, you know, like an easy example for me is like things like, uh, like homelessness, which I think every person would agree is like a, like a problem. Like we would like there not to be homeless. People would like people to have housing. Um, and yet every community, uh, seemingly resists, uh, attempts to build low income housing near where, where, where you live because it might change your housing values or it might change you losing your neighborhood or like, you know, they have these sort of gaps between our ideals and our practical lives. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're hard to bridge for, for, for all of us. And so I think, you know, looking for, for those kind of pressure points and seeing what the story is. And I'm like, it, if things were even worse, we already, to some extent, give up some of our freedoms for, for security and food. Right. I mean, that's just like having a job, um, <laughs> you know, you give up your time in order to have these things. Um, but there, there are more extreme versions of that. And I think we, we, we sometimes do sign on to things that we don't, we know are sort of maybe morally incorrect, or we feel morally queasy about and we allow them to happen on our behalf so that we can have the lives we want. Um, and sometimes that includes our own freedoms. So I, I think there's, there is something interesting there to me. Um, where, where is that line? It seems really extreme. Give up your citizenship so that you can be safe. Um, but uh, but the, the direness of the situation in the book is like much worse than it is now, right? But I don't feel like those are impossible outcomes to, uh, to arrive at. So, uh, Yuri Morov, or I don't know, how do you pronounce it? 
I see Mirov, but either way is probably fine. Mirov. Yeah. Uh, who's, it's Russian, right? And I don't speak Russian, so like, <laughs> however you want to do it is probably great. <laughs> he was anglicized while she was here. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She, what she wants to choose for everyone is uh, solar radiation management, a form of geoengineering. Uh, how did solar radiation management, uh, geoengineering, become part of your story? Yeah, I mean, I think. Uh... You know, you, I was reading a lot of possible sort of climate change mm-hmm. change uh, uh, remediations, of course. Um, I, it's partly maybe part of the story because I think uh, I think it seems like a bad idea. Um, so, like, <laughs> it's also like something I, I would prefer we didn't do um, for, for tons of reasons, um, some of which are in the book. Um, I think uh, it also seems like something that's going to like, continue to be advocated for because it's cheap and we could, we, you know, we could do a version of it right now if we wanted to. Mm-hmm. And so it's um, uh, while I was selling the book, you know, I was talking to editors as, as my agent was selling it. Um, Andrew Yang was running for president um, and uh, his his climate change platform was geoengineering, you know, um, okay. and uh, he won't be the last major party presidential candidate to advocate for it right mm-hmm. um you can read a uh op-ed advocating for it once a month in the new york times like that's gonna mm-hmm. it's gonna keep coming around um and again if we are back totally into a corner it might be something we had to choose and that seems like we should start thinking about it now if it's one of our our potential futures um it's also like uh i think it it's reasonably understandable like in a in a shorthand way you know other things would be more complicated to dramatize um uh it's something you can imagine happening in in a book where you know other kinds of uh like carbon sequestering is not uh at least the way i understand it very visual you know it's hard for mm-hmm. me to understand how to like make that dramatic um but uh but yeah i think the one of the reasons to talk about it is like it seems it's going to be a a idea that is presented and it's also a climate solution that doesn't in theory doesn't require us to like change our lives, which is one of the reasons it's attractive. It's this mm-hmm. cheap, easy thing. We'll just lower the temperature and we'll move on. And then that gets rid of all the complexity of it, including the fact that it would not stop any of the other problems, right? Like um, geoengineering doesn't affect like acid uh, acidification in the oceans, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a pretty hacky, don't worry about it kind of solution. Um, but it does also seem like something we're likely to hear much, much more about. It's also very techno-utopian, which I'm just generally sort of suspicious of techno-utopian solutions. And that, I mean, there's so many articles in Wired of how awesome geoengineering is, right? And it's like, with no hint of like the problems. Um, because it's that's sort of a, yeah, it's a techno-utopian solution to our world. Um, that, uh, yeah, I'm deeply, deeply skeptical I get about it. Maybe that's why it's there in some ways. People kept talking about it and I don't <laughs> believe it's a good idea in any way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I got major like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, yeah, Richard Branson vibes from from Yuri. Um, yeah, I mean, we're going to be putting up with those kind of people forever. I mean, that's like a, such an American archetype to be that uh, that guy, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, I think we should be very skeptical of those people as well. And thankfully, I think more and more people are. Although you see like the cult of personalities around all of those people, people who just mm-hmm. hang on their every word. Um, you, you could see how that easily can become an, I mean, it is a kind of power and can become this other kind of power as well. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So it's like on the surface, there's something that just seems absolutely bonkers about like continually spouting aerosols into the atmosphere to reflect sunlight and cool the earth. Um, sounds like a science fiction story rather than something we're actually doing. Um, but I think one of the things that makes the the novel engaging is that when Yuri is kind of making the case for for this to John, he's, he's like not that good at arguing against it. Yes. Um, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like he knows he's mad about it, but like she makes it sound pretty compelling. Like, oh, like if climate change is this bad and we have this, out there technology that theoretically could cool the earth. Like you doubt yourself for opposing it. Like, wait, am I just being, um, Mm -hmm. you know, overly technical skeptical? Yeah, I think, well, yeah, right. And I think that anxiety certainly exists in me in some ways. You don't always want to be a Luddite about everything. Uh, but I like technology and I, you know, I mean, I'm not against the, you know, just technology in general. I, I do think you're right. I think there's, um, and I remember really like discovering that I was writing that like Yuri had a better argument than John did. And, and John's almost this like, you know, if only he had the words, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that's how you feel reading some of those things. It's like, who would be against this vision of the future where we, we cool off the earth a little bit, we get, it gives us time. I mean, it's always that thing where like, we just need, we'll eventually invent the technology that makes the thing we're doing now okay. Um, and we're kind of at the far end of like the industrial revolution's version of that story, right? Or at least getting to the far end of it. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I, I think the more Yuri is the, I, I can see a person like Yuri giving that talk on TV in our time and everybody being like, that sounds really reasonable. Um, cause it does sound pretty reasonable. And even her like kind of secret plans that are in the, the second half of the book are yeah. also like pretty reasonable solutions to the problem she's facing. They're just not, again, like, let's not get in that position. Like, you know, like let's not have like. <laughs> the total extinction of life on earth be the problem we're dealing with. Um, I mean, we are dealing with it now, but like not at the level they are. Right. Yeah. There's a, a quote at one point in the book um, where a character is reflecting and, and says what we needed wasn't the flipping of one global switch, but instead a million small efforts in place and localities rooted in the specific land and water and air of the particular places where people lived. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, it gets back to what you were saying about, you know, it's technology without culture that, um, Mm -hmm. that is dangerous because the person saying this is thinking actually some of earthworks technologies like might've been really helpful if used, you know, toward more democratic ends in a more, you know, controlled, you know, in a way that's for everyone and not just for a few rich survivors. Um, but just the approach would need to be totally different. Yeah, I, um, this isn't really part of the book. It's something I think I got interested in after it, but I, uh, have been paying a lot of attention to, uh, the way solar power is sort of being expanded in the U S and, um, and I'm sure this is not universal, but a lot of the solar power startups are, are also still like very capitalist. They're, they're just capitalistic, um, unlimited growth kind of things, right? It's like make as much money as you can as cheaply as possible, rather than finding like the best way to do solar power. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we have like anti-union solar power companies. Um, you're like, you're bulldozing a wetland to put in a solar farm or something. And it's like, well, this is not what I was hoping would happen here, you know? Um, and it's partly because like using 
capitalistic mechanisms to undo the damage of capitalism is not going to be good. These people are in the solar business, not because solar power is the right thing for like, the future of humanity, but because there's money to be made in it, right? Um, and so they're doing it in the way that increases profits as much as possible, as opposed to the way that is best for the most amount of people or for the world, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And you just, and I'm not surprised that's where we ended up, but it's discouraging to see these things. We end up in weird places where maybe it's in California, but like the electric electrician unions are uh, lobbying against the expansion of solar power because the solar power companies don't use union electricians. So you end up in these weird places where the, the electricians union and the fossil fuel companies are allied against the solar power companies. Cause they don't, you know, we just like, this is, this can't possibly be the way forward, you know? Yeah. That's... Um, and, uh, very discouraging. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, you're in Arizona. I'm in California. I know. Also, yeah. in the desert, there's been lots of conflicts over solar panel, solar panels displacing, you know, a desert tortoise or a bighorn ram or yeah, yeah, yeah. zap birds in the sky. Um, and kind of conservationists and and climate activists have been at odds in some places, and it's. Uh, you know, unfortunate because we are theoretically all part of the same project or want to be part of the right. same project of, you know, making this world livable for ourselves and others. Um, yeah, absolutely. Of course. So this actually, I think, does circle back to a theme in your book, uh, which is, uh, I just want to read this quote from relatively early on. Um, where Chapman the Fawn is is you know making his way through through the Midwest planting apple trees. Um, Chapman aims to hurt no other creature, but every fallen tree spills birds' nests, squirrel hovels, spider webs, and wasps' nests. Everywhere the brothers make a home for an apple tree is somewhere something else no longer lives. He goes on. It's impossible to do no harm, but how much harm is permitted? And I think, like, yes, we should be building solar panels somewhere. Uh, you know, I think right. humans have as much right as any other species to provide for ourselves and, you know, have food and shelter and safety, mm -hmm. but not necessarily so much more right than every other species or some humans have so much more right than other humans. Um, so, yeah, how did working on this project affect your thoughts on this necessary harm that comes from just being a creature who needs to make food or shelter or comfort. Yeah, I think that's, it's, I mean, it's obviously complicated, right? And, and like you said, obviously, I, you know, you can get into these really weird places where you feel like anti-agriculture or something, right? Mm -hmm. People have to eat, like, it's okay you know, that we have <laughs> farms, right? Uh -huh. um, but a farm is also like a conversion of a wild space into something that's only for people and only mm -hmm. the things we agree should live there, live there, right? Um, and so that tension is complicated. Um, but, uh, I think that last thing you said about like some people having so much more right to it is definitely part of it, right? Like, um, the, uh, the, how much, how, how much do you need, how much of the world should be converted to your use, like individually, not just a human mm -hmm. use. Like, um, I, I think about that a lot. Just, I mean, COVID was just a, uh, everyone should be even more aware than they maybe already were of the way in which your life, whatever it is, requires somewhere on the like 
um, the work of other people, sometimes the suffering of other people, the endangerment of other people. Um, you know, I work for, I work from home a lot now, but during COVID, I just stayed in my house, right. And went out to get groceries and the, the people at the grocery store course were there all the time being sort of exposed. And like, if you didn't understand before that your life was dependent on like other people being put in more harm's way than you, it was like incredibly obvious in the last two years. And, you know, the book was done before that, but like that kind of thinking, was made even starker for me um, by the last couple of years. And, and there's obviously a natural world sort of version of that too. The um, uh, here in Arizona, there's, you know, we have uh, maybe like, I feel like we have the only like large scale copper mines left in the U S and several of the biggest in the world. And obviously copper goes in every piece of technology you have, including mm -hmm. this, you know, computers we're talking to each other for and the place where they mine them in Arizona is, is a, a beautiful beautiful landscape that has been like mountaintop removed you know into like strip mines um and it's incredibly ugly uh and every time I drive through a place it's like just heartbreaking to see these beautiful mountains reduced to this and then uh I have a house full of technology that is like the thing that that's done for like that mountaintop is taken apart for me you know um and, and that's complicated. And I, and like you said, it doesn't mean like you're not allowed to own a computer. It doesn't mean you're not allowed to like eat, mm -hmm. you know, but, uh, but at least you can acknowledge that it, that it's being done or that you have some, um, this is the word I think about a lot, I guess, it gives some complicity in it and you have maybe a responsibility to try to like reduce harm where you can. Um, it doesn't have to be to zero. It doesn't mean giving everything up, but like, if you can do less harm, do it, uh, and for most of us, there's some where we can make a choice to do less. Yeah, I think complicity was was already going to be the next thing uh, I was yeah. going to ask you about because there's sort of in the way we talk about climate and ecological issues, there's sometimes people are sort of oh, entirely the, you know the solution is you make these individual choices, and that doesn't feel right when we look up at you know, the governments and, and corporations and whole structures and systems that are set up to, uh, you know, put forward a certain way of life. Um, right. But on the other hand, you you sometimes hear on the left, like, oh, it's, you know, 100 corporations are responsible for 70% of emissions is a stat that was popular for a while. Right. Like, yes. And like, where does the, like, who uses the energy these corporations produce or buys the stuff they make or eats the beef they or whatever you know and um and so i i guess the the characters in your book are are definitely aware of the ways in which the the rich and the corporations and the governments sort of bear the lion's share of the the responsibility um but you know they they also like john says at one point he doesn't forgive those who came before, but he tells himself he also doesn't flee his own complicity. There is no crime into being born into a harmful story, but surely there's sin in not trying to escape. And then another character maybe takes it even farther, saying the problem belongs to every last person. Until it's solved, mm -hmm. everyone remains complicit, even if they resist. And how do you think about, I guess, like politically, this the degree to which like it's not our fault as individuals but also it is right i i mean I've, that's the question right <laughs> i mean I, I wish i knew for mm -hmm. sure but you know as you were as you were reading those two quotes i started thinking about um 
I think this problem maybe on the on the uh, among the Democrats, among the left, among people who are on the left who wouldn't consider themselves Democrats, um, is uh, sometimes very people are very good about having like acceptable ideas or acceptable sort of moralities or or whatever it is. Like you have you, do every, you believe everything for the right reasons, but we're very as a broad group bad at exercising like gaining or exercising power, right? Um, so like having right ideas is not improving the world, like, you know, making them even, even if slightly compromised, making them happen in the world is. And mm-hmm. I think that, that just that awareness, like, oh, the world is complicated and I'm complicit and I, you know, I, I, I wish things weren't this way is like, that's like a first step. That's like your eyes are open. And then there's like, what can you do about it? And as an individual, often not very much, right? Like, at, at, you know, you can do all the things in your house. Like I'm you know, a childless vegetarian who drives a plug-in hybrid who recycle, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you do what you can do. Um, but, uh, at the same time, that's not really producing systemic change in any way. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you can't do that yourself, uh, unless you, maybe you're a Yuri Mirov. Uh, but, uh, but you, I do think like we could stand to be, and this includes me, absolutely stand to be better at like making the, uh, the things we believe, manifest in the world a little more than we do um i i i you know i obviously i don't know where you are politically but like i've had a very it's been a very frustrating year watching like the democrats be in charge of everything and be unable to do anything um uh it just feels like it's we're we're the trump era felt like a waste of four years for climate change even in the places where he didn't make things worse and this feels like people who believe all the right things are still wasted another year, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's frustrating. I think, so maybe that's part of it. It's like figuring out how to translate the more shared morality. Like everybody I know believes more or less, I mean, like my friends, right? Like believe like more or less the same things I do, but the shared thing we make happen in the world together is probably not enough. Um, and maybe that's the next step is like for when we find ways to turn those individual awareness is into collective action. And obviously lots of people working on that. This is not like a new idea, right? But like more of us could choose to be part of that collective action um, and not just tweet the thing we believe, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's honestly, it's sort of difficult to fathom or like know what to think watching like ostensibly a congressional majority of people who right. would at least say they think climate change is a problem just like they can't do it <laughs> yeah uh, yeah you just think like the the discouragement of that for everyone who had who got them there you know i mean it's so um yeah the the, the sort of nihilism there's nothing to be done or people won't ever really do anything so why bother is definitely one of the biggest dangers of the climate change era mm-hmm. right um I think I'm a I'm a I'm a reasonably skeptical person and trying to have like your skepticism and your hope ride alongside each other sometimes is a a, a difficult thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the I think it gets back a little bit about what you were saying about geoengineering and other techno solutions, which is there's just kind of this promise of like we can fix climate change without having to change how we live. Right. Um, and I think what we should be looking for in some ways is new ways to, in some way, like why would we want to keep yeah. living the way we're living now? Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've, I've, I mean, I wonder that what the energy of 
of the next couple of years will be, you know, I think there's so much like, like real and understandable sort of anger in, in many, many camps coming out of COVID, which really did, you know, I think, mm -hmm. uh, expose the, the sort of, uh, all these sort of things in ways that had not been before. Um, I think, uh, you know, the people who are, who are so many of the people who are like in this like great resignation or whatever we're calling great resignment, whatever we're calling it, or everybody's quitting their jobs. There are people mm -hmm. quitting also like, white collar jobs and jobs that in some ways were not like you were not put in danger during COVID, but it was became very clear that maybe like your employer did not have your interests in mind ever. Um, and uh, I don't know, like it might, hopefully some of that energy becomes some of this other, other kind of action because it, it is related, but it's just whether we go on to solve this is, you know, you see the way the institutions do not care for you as an individual, and maybe you solve that for yourself rather than trying to solve it for everybody, right? So I'm, I'm hoping so many people are feeling anger and dissatisfaction in a way that can be harnessed toward uh, good. Um, the worry, of course, is that it will be harnessed in the exact opposite way. Um, but uh, but it does seem like there's a chance for real change in in sort of even like ultra capitalist sort of America right now that maybe didn't feel like it existed five years ago um mm -hmm. we'll see I, I i hope you know mm -hmm. yeah one so shifting gears a little bit one thing that yeah. really comes through in the novel is your attention and love for the non-human world mm -hmm. and we've talked about um you know thinking of new ways to coexist with the non-human world yeah. uh where does that come from for you like where does your is there are there profound experiences you've had with animals or landscapes uh philosophical journeys um yeah where does your love for the non-human world come from yeah i mean some of it's just you know i i grew up in the the in rural michigan and you know spent my uh huge portion of my childhood you know out, outdoors at our, our own home and also um, you know, hiking and backpacking and, and kayaking and, you know, the Great Lakes and the upper Michigan. And um, so the landscape, I, I just really, really deeply love and matters to me a lot. And, um, I, you know, I grew up in a family of, of uh, like deer hunters, but people like, you know, people who deeply like love deer and, and, and care about them. And, and, you know, it's, it, there's a, it's always complicated, right? But is um, that was part of a love of the natural na nature where I grew up. Um, I, uh, I, you know, still am, am all those things. I'm a, a trail runner. I spend a lot of time here in the desert, you know, out there out by myself. Uh, my wife and I both hike and backpack a lot together. My wife is a, a birder and a master naturalist and all these things. And so we, we, we do, I think, engage a lot with it. It's something that, um, is our, our want is always to be sort of closer to it. So I think that's, you know, there's this sort of just personal experience part of it. Right. Um, and I think, you know, when I was writing Appleseed specifically, I, I had this note uh, taped to my monitor for a long time that just said, go big with wonder. And mm -hmm. I think that was sort of like my marching orders for the book that I wanted people in every era of the book, even the sort of more degraded natural worlds to to still feel to feel wonder at the life that was around them. Um, even when John's in the very not natural part of like the voluntary agricultural communities, like he sees wild birds and stuff, right? Like they're sort of, mm -hmm. and, he, and he's, he's thrilled to see them. Um, and this idea that even if you live in, I mean, I live in a, uh, uh, sprawling city, you know, in a suburb far from the city center and, uh, but there's nature all around me, right. And it's sort of, and it's wondrous to sort of have around me. And I think trying to 
build that engagement with nat wonder at the natural into every part of the book um i think seems important to me partly because like it's our one the wonder toward the world is part of the reason to save it right um mm -hmm. the idea of a world without this kind of wonder in it um is, is as heartbreaking as anything else for me um i'm reading a, a novel that just came out by a woman named sarah blake called clean air and there's a part i just read today where the uh, there's been this kind of climate disaster. It's very different than ours, but it's, um, uh, there's a future, uh, where there are not really wild animals. And the mother is like, I thought when my daughter was like, you know, this age, I would be telling her about when there were squirrels and birds and all this stuff. But the daughter doesn't, it doesn't even occur to the daughter that there were squirrels and birds, right? Um, mm -hmm. they're not part of her world. And I, I just crushed by it, right? Like, I just feel like that's somehow that's even worse. Like the daughter isn't missing it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, so I don't know, that's sort of a big messy answer to the question, but I really think that sort of, I want the wonder that I feel toward the world to be preserved and championed. Um, yeah. So here I, we are going to ask a, a spoilery question of sorts. Um, and so I'll, I'll add in edits how far ahead to skip if you haven't read the book and don't want to know. To avoid spoilers, you can skip ahead about 5 minutes and 32, 33 seconds. Uh, but going off of that, it's interesting because like, it's written with so much wonder, and the end in particular feels hopeful. But kind mm -hmm. of if you go through like what actually happens, it's a very depressing novel. But it didn't. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel. <laughs> yes. It didn't feel depressing to me to read, but it does involve the people who try to save the world end up indirectly killing most life, um, mm -hmm. and so I guess just like, is it hopeful? Are you hopeful? Yeah, I think it's hopeful. Um... I think, well, I think there's two kinds of hope here, right? One is, I think the, the, like, like the bitterest hope about all climate change mm -hmm. stuff for me is that even if humanity manages to like wipe ourselves out, we will not wipe out life on earth. Mm -hmm. There will be causing a massive extinction event, but there will be life after us. I, that feels indisputable to me, you know? Um, and, and that life passed us is hopeful. I would like humanity to be there with it. You know, that's the preference, right? That we, we figure it mm -hmm. out and we correct things and we save as much of the world as we can. And we get to go into the future in a better way with, with the world around us. Um, bar, but if we do not, life will go on. I mean, it, the, the loss will be incredible. And after it, there will be new life. Um, some of which will be the life that's here now, right? We it just, there's, there's no way it's hubris to believe that somehow we will like, we're so mm -hmm. important that we can take everything down with us. You know, assuming we don't like fracture the planet in half or something with you, something else we do. Um, but I think we'll probably be okay. Um, and so that's part of it. I think it, and that is like a bitter sort of hope, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if people talk about the end of the book being hopeful and the end of the book is like humanity is extinct and there's still life. Um, right. That humanity also helped kind of preserve. Um, that's pretty oh, it's slim hope. Um, I actually don't know if that would have read as hopeful in like 2016 when I started the book. I think it's been a hard couple of years and i think people have 
um, I think just the general like awareness of the urgency of climate change has gone up massively in the general like American public in the last five years. Um, and so I think that maybe makes the ending work for people. The other, the other part of this, I think, is in each era of the book, the, the protagonists and the characters around them are trying to make the world better by their current understanding of the world. Um, it's easy to look at Nathaniel with his sort of capitalist entrepreneurial uh, 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 post-indigenous genocide version of like making the Midwest more productive. Uh, from our point of view, there's sort of like he's wrong about more or less everything, you know. Um, in his own mind, he's making the world a better place, right? Um, John is trying to figure out how to make his world a better place. Yuri's making the world a better place. C's world is so small and he's caring mm -hmm. for it the best he can. I, those are those are acts of hope, you know, um, and that's all we can really do in our time is uh, knowing what you know, what can you do to make things better? Um, that's a hopeful gesture anytime you're engaged in that kind of thinking or action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think people often say, like, are we going to survive climate change or how are we going to make it through climate change? And we is sort of default understood to be the human species. Uh, yeah. And with, especially with C uh, and the tree that's grown out of him, uh, we becomes kind of this broader network of living beings that we're, it's like a project we're part of. Right. It's not only us. Yeah, it is. I think, um, you know, I talked before about like the, that estrangement between the, the natural, you know, that, like that, that feeling of like, I mean, when we talk about like going into nature, right. You know, I mean, you know, like the, the, like it's the separate thing. Um, it's hard. It is hard to like ally yourself with the world in addition to being with other people. But I think, I do think more people are thinking that way. And I think it's, it, it is a thing like, even if I can't feel it, I intellectually can know it sometimes and act as if I feel it. And maybe later I'll feel it more, you know? Um, and I think thinking of all the living things in your space as being part of you or, or being the community you're part of, um, that seems so crucial to me. I mean, there's obviously a human version of that. Like we, we so easily do us versus them. Um, and we, the more you can see all the, all the different people in, in your, your space or in the planet as you, the better off humanity will be. Um, but there's obviously a human versus non-human, even saying mm -hmm. versus, right? Uh, right there's a human right. and non-human version of that. That is the same thing, like to see the animals that, that live in my neighborhood and live in my yard and live around me as like my neighbors um, should not be as hard as it is. But I think we can practice it and get better at it. And then we'll do better by those creatures as well. Mm -hmm. And spoiler section. You, you wrote this kind of roundup of uh, climate change themed fiction uh, where you wrote at their best, cli-fi, climate fiction narratives, uh, always become technologies of future making for making our future. Mm. Um, I was wondering if you could sort of expand on on what that means and, and what how that affected your own work or how it affects your future work. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, Ursula Gwynn said once that like every... Uh, every utopia contains its own dystopia. Every dystopia, you know, contains its, uh, contains a, a its reverse, contains a utopia. And I think that's true. And so even when you're writing about 
uh, a future that we might not want to end up with, like the one in Appleseed, you're, it's, it kind of contains the better future, right? The choices that could have been made that got us a different place are, are sort of in there. You're always also speculating about like a better future. Um, and I, I do think we have, it's hard to imagine like ending up in a future we can't see in any way or, or a good one, you know? Um, I think we, some of the things that we need to probably do to get to a future that's better for more people and better for more of the world will feel like giving things up. And so we might need to uh, to Im have imaginative versions where we can see what it would be like to live in those places. Um, you know, I uh, I was talking with a, a friend of, a while back and we were talking about um, like uh, defund the police kind of movements. And, you know, something mm -hmm. that like we both just kind of felt like kind of hard, like hard to think totally about. Like what would it actually look like to live in a city with no police force? Right. I'm like, but that's the thing a novel could do. You know, mm -hmm. you could like game it out. You can figure it out. And like getting to read a novel set in a world with no police force where, where everything else was done in some other mechanism might make it easier for people to imagine living in such a place. And so I, I think that's really important. And, you know, and some futures are warnings and some futures are aspirations and we need to have both of them. Um, I think as I was writing Appleseed, I obviously knew I was writing a pretty dystopic future. Um, but I did try to think about things we will probably really do some of which are, 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 you know, better solutions. Like they're part of what earth trust is doing is inventing, inventing crops that will be able to survive in a warmer climate. Like we probably do need to do that. Like, cause the warmer climate is coming, you know, um, it, we're probably not going to be able to live off the things we lived off a hundred years ago in a hundred years, you know? Um, so some of that seemed like, there's these little utopian pockets, you know, or a little like, at least like, if it's not utopian, at least practical, uh -huh. like we're going to probably need to figure this out. Um, uh, and so I, I, I don't know. I think that kind of thinking is really interesting. Um, and there's small ways in which you're imagining what it would be like to, to live in the future. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I, we are going to live in the future if all goes well, you know, at least in the short term. Mm -hmm. And I think trying to imagine how it will be better than now or how we will avoid it being worse than now seems like an important thing for people to be to be doing. Um, and really the best parts of it for me are where people think on top of the book, you know, other people writing about it and thinking past its ideas or thinking on top of its ideas, I find um, incredibly gratifying because you know, that's what I did to get to my book. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm really excited. Any idea in that, in that book that someone could improve upon seems great. Right. Um, uh, yeah. And I'm sure that's true of most of the other kind of people doing this kind of speculative work. Yeah. You teach a class on climate fiction or you used to, is that correct? Uh, yeah, I, I've taught, uh, I taught one in the past directly about climate fiction. And then I also teach a class on world building, um, which, uh, frequently still involves, of course, reading climate fiction as well. Mm -hmm. So I, that seems to me like a kind of an interesting space for thinking beyond the idea, ideas in the novel. Um, so mm -hmm. what are some of the things your, your students respond to most in stories like this? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think I'm uh, thinking about like uh, Paolo Bacigalupi is the water knife, which is set in Phoenix. Right. So it's a mm -hmm. it's a near future Phoenix. Um, and I don't know if you've read that, um, but, uh, uh, you know, it's really uh, a pretty good explanation, too, of like the Colorado River compact and like how water is shared in the southwest 
and and sort of the issues based around it and then a like again kind of a worst case scenario like when the wa- when the water is gone or mostly gone like how will the political tension sort of you know change this way and um it was of course both interesting to talk about this particular future but even the students from Arizona or well, a lot of our students are from either Arizona or California you know at ASU and um you know, students had had grown up in both these places and never really thought about where the water comes from, you know, and maybe, you know, but you don't think about it that much. (laughs) And even just having that be really present for a while that like, you know, uh, there's all these irrigation canals all through Phoenix. Like that's where I go, I go running on them. So I think about them a lot, but um, students who'd grown up in Phoenix had never really thought about the canals, except as like a feature of their neighborhood. It was like, where does this canal go? Where does it come from? And they had not, they didn't really know, you know, um, and sort of surfacing the, the way the natural world had been manipulated to make life possible in Phoenix, um, was really interesting. And, uh, and you know, sometimes it like freaks students out a little bit. And sometimes it just, it was just a curiosity they'll forget about right away. But I think, uh, I don't know, like showing h- how your life exists is something that I think is purposely hidden from us a lot so that we don't think about it that much. And sometimes the climate fiction just made that sort of visible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and I think I, I often teach it through like genre fiction, partly because the students are sort of hungry for genre fiction. So they get excited about reading science fiction and fantasy, mm-hmm. like, uh, like NK Jemison's the fifth season or something. And, uh, and then they they stay to think about the climate change, stay to think about the future. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a good trick. And hopefully what I can keep pulling <laughs> off. And of course, yeah. they do deeply care about it. Like they, un- my undergrads are like, they're so much more interested in like systemic change and what the future will look like than I was as an undergrad. You know, I mean, I think like mm-hmm. it's sort of amazing to be around. Well... I guess on that um, hopeful note, is there yeah. <laughs> is there anything more you want to add or talk about? No, this is fantastic. Thank you so much, Dayton. Yeah, thank you. This was great. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating or reviewing this podcast. Um, and if you like kind of creative genre-bending fiction about ecological issues, uh, the Storytelling Animals Book Club uh, will be reading Barn 8 by Deb Olin Unferth uh, this month to be discussed on Tuesday, March 29th. This book club is for supporters of the podcast on Patreon at the Lorax tier and above. Um, please go to patreon.com slash storytellingpod if you would be interested in joining this book club and supporting uh, this podcast. Thanks so much.